Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 46, brought to you by Lifetree at PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. It's a kind of a funny name. If you're new to the podcast, just a little history. This podcast launched about three years ago with my partner in crime, Becky Harrington, and at the beginning, when we were first envisioning this podcast, and I threw out my idea for what this could look like, I suggested the name The Jesus-Centered Life, because at the time I had just written this book that's sort of the, uh, sort of the condensed, culminating sort of treatise on my whole life up to this point, The Jesus-Centered Life. What does that life look like, and, and how do you live that life every day? So it was kind of like the, the, the mountaintop book for me that, uh, that captured my whole progression into this life of passionately following Jesus to that point. So I thought, well, of course we're going to call the podcast The Jesus-Centered Life, and Becky very astutely said, what a boring name for a podcast. And she said, she said Rick, you're always talking about paying ridiculous attention to Jesus, and you're writing about it all the time. Why don't we call the podcast Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus? And I thought, wow, Becky's really smart. And so that's how we got the name. It's just a mouthful when you say it. So we have to use acronyms when the, the name's too long. So it's, I, I always call this podcast Pratt G because, you know, figure it out. So I'm Rick, of course. And in addition to writing Jesus Centered Life, uh, more recently, I wrote Spiritual Grit, which is an exploration of the strength that we desperately need, and how we can get that strength from Jesus to face life's challenges and and move into the opportunities that Jesus puts before us. We can't just rely on our own shallow well of strength. Where does that strength come from? And so it's a book full of upending truths about following Jesus, followed by a bunch of ways to live a more grit-growing life. So... And in addition to that, I'm the general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible, which we talk about a lot on this podcast. It's a Bible with a bunch of special features that we have created to make the experience of reading the Bible sort of an intimate encounter with Jesus, no matter where you're reading. So we'll have links to all of those things on our podcast page as well. And this month, the month of November, we have a month-long focus that we're calling Reinventing the Basics. Uh, it's not the first time we've addressed basics on this podcast. We did the more conventional basics maybe a year or two ago. This month, we're going to explore what might seem like things that are on the fringe of our life with Jesus, but actually they're central to it. And so reinventing the basics means upending some of our conventional wisdoms about what it is to follow Jesus and even who Jesus is and what he's, what he's inviting us into. And so we're, we want to upend some of those things, even the, some of the common practices and expected norms of the Christian life, of the Jesus-following life. So today, uh, we're going to focus on something I think that's mostly lost in the noise and chaos of our contemporary life today. It's the sound of silence. 
like right there, that was the sound of silence too. That was like two seconds of silence. And didn't that feel awkward? Like what's happening now? <laughs> Why isn't he talking? Uh, that's kind of a picture actually of our life. When there are gaps of silence, we want them to be filled. That's sort of our default setting. Silence, I know from my perspective uh, as the uh, editor of a, the world's most read youth ministry resource for 30 years, I know that the most radical thing that, that a youth ministry can do is introduce their students to silence. Um, the silence is the most radical thing in youth ministry, um, and it's risky to create an experience or an event that includes being silent for part of that experience or event. So it's not just with kids, it's adults too. We literally, when you talk to somebody and the, and the first question you ask is, how are you doing? I'd say about 80% of the time what you're going to hear is, I'm really busy. And that phrase, I'm really busy, also means I have no margins of silence in my life. So what's the big deal? The fact that we don't typically have much silence um, worked into the margins of our life, what, what difference does it make? Well, I think it makes a huge difference and is profoundly impacting the type of relationship that people have with Jesus today. So it might seem weird to focus on silence as a basic aspect of following Jesus, but uh, I hope you discover uh, by the end of this episode that how non-weird it is. So... Of course, we can't think about silence without thinking uh, about the uh, most famous song about silence ever written, Simon and Garfunkel's The Sound of Silence. I just thought I'd read a few lyrics from the song. It's a, it's a type of song that we think we know what the song's about until you actually pay attention to the lyrics, and then you're like, what is this song about? So here's, here's a little bit of The Sound of Silence by Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel. Uh, feel free to sing along as I, um, you know... I'm not going to sing, but as I say these words, if you feel like you have no other option but to sing, please do. So it's, Hello darkness, my old friend, I've come to talk with you again, because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping, and the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. In restless dreams I walked alone, narrow streets of cobblestone, Neath the halo of a street lamp, I turned my collar to the cold and damp. When my eyes were stabbed by the flash of a neon light that split the night and touched the sound of silence. And in the naked light, I saw 10,000 people, maybe more. People talking without speaking. People hearing without listening. People writing songs that voices never share. And no one dared disturb the sound of silence. So it's, I'm going to stop there. It's an interesting play on the nature of silence here. You see both positive and negative aspects of silence here. In part, uh, Paul Simon is, is writing here about the silence that is destructive when someone needs to break the silence and say something or stand up for something. Instead, they're silent. There's a negative aspect to silence that, that he's touching on here, and he's also painting a picture of some of the, the, uh, the powerful and positive aspects of silence, I'd say silence has some melancholy around it, usually. Um, I'm not sure exactly why that is, but, but if you've ever been in uh, or chosen to be in an extended time of silence, 
there's a little bit of a tinge of melancholy around that, and even some of the images Paul Simon writes about that that give us the sense of silence. Um, a restless dream, a narrow street of cobblestone at night um, that's dimly lit by the halo of a street lamp, and you have to turn your collar up to the cold and dampness. He's painting a picture of, uh, of what silence feels like, in a way, and there is a, a touch of that melancholy buried in there. And I, I don't know about you, but I, I really like a touch of melancholy. I'm really drawn to silence, and uh, what draws me to silence is um, a sense that I have reconnected at a deep, deep level with Jesus and with myself. I think you can feel this in your everyday life, the, I, the, the sense that sometimes our life is, is kind of floating over the surface of a foundation, not anchored to it. It's almost like when you walk into the ocean, that moment when your feet lose contact with the sand under your feet when you start to float. That's what most of American life is like today. We've lost contact with the sand, and our feet are just floating above it. And we're subject then to the currents. Um, if your feet aren't rooted in the sand, you have nothing really to anchor you. And whatever comes along, whatever current comes along or wave comes along can push you one direction or another. It's a nervous kind of feeling to not feel grounded. And I believe that silence is the primary way that Jesus has set aside for us to maintain our foundation and our groundedness. I wanted to tell you a little bit of story that, that really illustrates for me the importance of silence in my own life. Uh, a while back, it must be maybe 10 years ago now, um, I was having a hard day. <laughs> my, wife, my wife has a, a chronic lung disease. I think I've mentioned that before on the podcast. And she she's uh, we miraculously found a doctor who uh, tried something experimental with her and stopped the advance of her disease. But at the time that, that this season of my life was happening, she had not yet um, been on this treatment very long. And one of the consequences of her lung disease is extreme exhaustion and fatigue. So uh, depending on the day, uh, she might wake up in the morning and just feel like she can't even get out of bed. And uh, this particular Saturday, I'd had a really long stretch of stressful, tension-filled, marginless time in my work. And on this particular Saturday, our, our kids, plus my wife Bev, were supposed to go to a birthday party for one of my kids' cousins. And um, I wasn't going to go because I had just too much work to do. I, this is something I never did. I always went to family gatherings, but this one I had already decided I just can't go. I've got too much work to do. Um, I was planning to go to a Starbucks somewhere with my laptop and, and get work done while they were away at this birthday party. But Bev got up in the morning and said, I just don't think I can take them. Uh, I don't feel well. And inside, I totally understood where she was coming from, and I also was screaming on the inside. I thought, the one thing I needed, just some time, some some time to focus today, and that's gone away now. I've got to take the kids to this party. And I literally, I did something even now that makes me cringe. I decided that I was going to take them to the party, but I was going to bring my laptop with me and just sneak away to some place um, at the cousin's house and do the work that I intended to do in the first place. So I was literally bringing my laptop with me to a family gathering. I can't believe I did that, but I did. And so... um, uh, 
we were late because I wasn't planning on having to take them somewhere. And so I'm scrambling around. I'm trying to get our kids ready. They were, uh, my daughter, uh, my older daughter's 20 now, and my younger daughter's 15. So they were kids. And um, they had to be strapped into seats and all, all that kind of stuff. We had to make sure we had stuff that, uh, that for them that we were bringing along. And so I was all of a sudden scrambling around trying to get all this together and trying to make sure they weren't late. And I had all this stuff. I had a computer bag on my shoulder, and I was carrying a latte in my hand. And I had all this stuff going on, and I was so focused, you know, almost like a zombie, you know, when you get uh, tunnel vision, just so focused on just getting into the garage, getting in the car, and getting them out of there that I forgot that we have steps from the inside of our house to the garage. I literally forgot. Have you ever, you know, expected to walk on on a flat ground and all of a sudden you're you're you've got stairs in front of you? Well, I walked right off the landing from our kitchen into our garage, forgetting there were steps, and I hit the ground hard. Uh, I had a computer in my computer bag. I had a hot latte in my hand that spilled everywhere, and I hit the the concrete ground really hard. The garage door was open. My kids were in the car, but I it just the fact that. I, I that this happened to me, this accident happened to me, and it hurt. Uh, it didn't break anything. I, I wasn't really hurt by it. I was bruised a little bit. But because this happened, it just released like it poked a, a, a hole in the top of a pot that had broken up, that had built up all this pressure. And I just screamed at the top of my lungs. It was just a release of all the frustration and stress and anger inside that I was in this position. I just screamed. Well, it turns out the garage operates like an amplifier. <laughs> and so my scream got amplified to the entire neighborhood. And some new neighbors who had just moved in maybe a month or so before, and we hadn't even met them yet, came running over because they heard this guy screaming bloody murder in his garage. And I and I was so embarrassed because I'm down there on the floor with coffee all around me and I'm trying to make sure my computer's okay. And they're like, are you all right? <laughs> and, I'm, and, I, and I tried to smile. And I said, yeah, I'm okay. It's just, and I explained to them what was happening. And by their graciousness, they said, you know what? How about if we take your kids to the party? Because I, I had kind of turned my ankle and uh, it really hurt. And so I said, right about when they offered that, my wife in her robe shows up at the garage door to see what it was happening. There she is in her robe, meeting the new neighbors for the first time. And uh you know, they just were, like I said, very gracious, and they, they literally took our kids to where they needed to go. I came back inside the house uh, feeling really embarrassed, but still really angry and fuming inside about all this. And I was really, ultimately, what I was, what I, I was angry at God. I was angry that I was in this situation, that, that he didn't rescue me from it. And I was just so seething inside, and my wife could sense how grouchy and unapproachable I was, so she just smartly left me alone. So I'm sitting in this chair, my ankle's hurting, my neighbors, who I've never met before, taking my kids to this party, my wife doesn't want anything to do with me, and I'm just seething inside, and I start to talk to Jesus and start to uh, air my complaints with him. And I, after I got it kind of out, I was silent for a moment, and I sensed him, and this is going to sound funny, but this is what I sensed him saying back to me. He said, uh, Rick... I pull the trigger. And in the state that I was in at the time, I knew exactly what he meant. I, uh, what he meant was your life inside, 
your internal life was out of control. It was floating off the sand. You were in a reactive mode, and you have been for a while, and it was culminating into something. And the culmination was this. It wasn't that Jesus tripped me on my way into the garage. What he meant was that release of pressure, um, uh, all the stuff that surfaced out of me that I've been holding inside was part of his beautiful intention. He took something ugly. He was taking something ugly and taking advantage of it. He was trying to point something out in me. So I pulled the trigger meant he was revealing and surfacing an interior reality that I had been both unaware of and unwilling to embrace, and basically said, you need to make a change. Um, You're floating off the sand right now, and you need to be anchored. I told my good friend Bob Krulish about what happened, and he offered, at the time that I was uh, involved in my church, and Bob Krulish was a staff member of the church, and uh, they had a, a thing that I didn't know they were doing. They they would pay for staff members or elders who wanted to go and spend one day away with the Lord um, at a retreat facility about an hour away from where the church was. And you could go and go in, in your own room and have your own room for the day at this retreat center, um, and the church would pay for it. And he invited me to come along on their next trip, even though I was not a staff member and not yet an elder. About a year later, I was a, an elder at the church, but he invited me just because I had already been serving as a leader in the church, and he was just full of grace and offered me the opportunity. And, and it came on the heels of this experience, and I, and I immediately jumped at it and had the pattern in my life for many, many years of once a month going away for a silent day away with the Lord. Now, I'll talk a little bit later about personal retreats and different forms of silence that you can invite into your life, and I'll I'll just share with you what I do so that you have a sense of what might be possible for you to do. But that that started a pattern in my life of regularly um, making sure that I had silent time, significant silent time in my life. And so that was once a month for one day, but also at least once a year, sometimes two times a year, I go away for a three-day personal retreat. It's just me, usually at a Trappist monastery in the mountains of Colorado. Trappist monks uh, do what they call keep the silence, so they do not speak. Um, They have a designated monk who will talk with outside visitors, but at this monastery they have a retreat house and the uh, uh, eight or ten little stone hermitages that you can... um, stay in for a donation, and these stone hermitages are very spare. They just have a bed, some lights, a little kitchen, a little uh, uh, a little bathroom, and that's it. And the whole valley that where the monastery sits in the mountains is owned by the monks, and since they're monks who keep the silence, the entire valley is silent. It's the most silent place I've ever been to, and I absolutely love it. It's one of the highlights of my year to go on a three-day silent retreat at this place. And I'll talk a little bit more about if you uh, want to go on a more extended experience of silence, I'll I'll, I'll give you some pointers on that as well in just a bit. But the story that I just told you is really, um, it's personal, but it's universal, meaning I think I'm not the only one who has a lot of built-up pressure inside. And and I'm not the only one whose feet have started to float off the sand and no longer have a foundation. I'm not the only one who feels the anxiety of living a reactive life. 
and how that can build up and spurt out sideways sometimes uh, to the people that you love. So I think that silence is not a luxury, it's a necessity. And if we don't have seasons of silence in our life, we live reactively. Here's some signs that you might be living reactively right now. You have a lot of impatience. Sometimes you say, uh, say words that harm other people around you, and you immediately regret them. Sometimes you recognize that you have a pattern of what I would call silly thinking, where you haven't really thought through things very much, and you spout, maybe you spout an opinion that isn't very well thought through. You might be living reactively if that's you sometimes. Or do you feel sometimes withdrawn into your own world, uh, like you're uh, focused on something far off, but actually the far off place you're focused is inside yourself? Or maybe you feel this sense of shallowness in your life, like you literally feel like your feet aren't really grounded on anything. Or you feel restlessness or anxiety, or even emotionally unstable. Um, these are all signs that you're living reactively. And the consequences of these things that I've just listed are no small thing. They, these are huge consequences sometimes. You do and say things that you immediately know are not representative of your true heart, and yet there it is. You said or did them, and now you have to own them and even explain them to yourself as to why you did those things. So silence, in the way that I'm talking about this, can come in many forms. So I've, I've listed six here in my notes, uh, but you may even have more. But let me give you some examples of the types of silence that, um, that I'd like to invite you into today. So the first one is listening well before you speak. So I often hear DJs talk about a song that they're playing, or live musicians talking about a song they're about to play, and they'll say something like, uh, they want to make sure that they let the music breathe, which means giving it space, space to be enjoyed and to be savored, to, to not quickly step over the listening of the music or playing of the music so that you don't savor it. And so I think that listening well before you speak is like breathing well in a conversation. It's allowing the conversation room to breathe. So, and more specifically, letting others' words breathe before you start to fill up the gaps with your own. This is a particular challenge for me because my interior life is like a jungle. I have lots of stuff going on. If you've read any of my books, you probably can... Uh, attest that my books often feel like a jungle as well. And uh, I have a lot going on inside, and uh, my thoughts are often five or six steps ahead of where the person who's talking to me are, is. And it's, so it's a real uh, conscious practice for me to slow down, breathe, and listen well to the people in my life, to really focus well on what it is they're saying, and to focus on my listening instead of my speaking. It doesn't mean that speaking's not important. But listening well before you speak is a form of keeping the silence, because you are reluctant to fill up the margin or jump on what somebody is saying before you've allowed some silence in you to understand and apprehend what the other person is saying, not just by their words, but by their tone and body language and everything else, and looking even beyond their words to the meaning beyond their words. The only way you can do that is if you practice a form of silence inside, which finds its form in listening well. 
Another way that silence, uh, another form that silence comes in, is choosing to pay full attention to one thing. So I was recently at back-to-back-to-back conferences and summits, and at one of them, I ended up sitting at a table for uh, an hour or two with uh, a couple of other people, and one of them was a youth pastor. And I've been around youth pastors for 30 years. I've been kind of an anthropologist of youth pastors for a long time, and I understand um, how youth pastors work. They're all unique, obviously, but there is a, a, a certain culture created in church youth ministry that that is very familiar to me. And youth pastors and their habits and their likes and dislikes are very familiar to me. So there I am sitting at this table with the, uh, this youth pastor, and the leader of the event that we were at had just asked us to talk about a very specific question at our table. And so then I looked over at my the two people at my table, and I asked the youth pastor, you know, well, what do you think about the question the leader just asked us to talk about? And he looked at me and he said, oh, we're really going to talk about it? And I immediately knew, oh, yeah, there is a kind of currency in youth ministry that is defined by cynicism. Cynicism stands outside of experiences and conversations. It's, it's kind of cool to be cynical, but the effect of cynicism is it leverages distance between us and, and relationship. It keeps this sort of safe distance, this no-man's zone. So cynicism pushes away instead of invites. So what he was saying is, oh, we're really going to have a real conversation about that? And it sounded, you know, kind of snarky cool, but to me, that just pushes things away. And then after we finished our conversation, we kind of redirected our attention up to the front again and listened to what was going on. And for the next hour, I watched this youth pastor um, with his smartphone in his lap, and he was staring at his smartphone the entire time that the person up front was speaking. And sometimes he'd put it down for a few seconds, and then he'd pick it back right back up and, and start staring at it again. And I thought, this is extraordinary that you, you pay to come to an event, you travel to the event, and then when you're at the event, you're staring at your smartphone through an entire session. And I realized um, as the time went on that I don't think he was capable of putting down his phone. I, I think that it, the phone represented much more than a source of information and connection to him. It represented something else, and he could not put that thing down. So he could not pay attention to one thing at a time. And that also will lead to a reactive life. Um, when we multitask, and which, by the way, is psychologically impossible, uh, neuroscientists say that multitasking doesn't really happen, meaning you can't do overlapping things at once. When you multitask, you're just rapidly switching between the things that you're concentrating on. It might feel like you're overlapping, but you, you're not. Your brain can't. You're just rapidly switching between those things. So it's the rapid switching that really takes your feet off the foundation of sand. It's what makes you float. It's what keeps you from having a foundation under your feet. So when you focus on one thing, the reason that that's a form of silence is that you're giving yourself time to chew on just one thing. You're giving yourself time to let that one thing sink in or saturate you instead of filling all your margins with other things. A third way that silence, the form that silence comes in, is that silence in the margins of our life instead of filling up the margins. So I just remember for some reason this strange 
time when I, I had to take my car in to have a new emissions check done. We ha- you, you probably have to do that every year or every other year or so. And um, the emissions check places are always like the bleakest places on earth for a waiting room. Like they have hard chairs in a bare white hallway, at least the place I take mine to. And it's a single file line of chairs in this in this little waiting room. So, you know, everyone's sitting in there waiting and watching through the window, their car being checked with the hoses up the exhaust pipe and all that stuff. And every single time I have to do this, every other single person in that waiting room is looking at their smartphone, filling up this dead time where they're waiting for their car. I have purposefully chosen when I go to things like this to not do that, to experience the what you might call the blandness of the environment, <laughs> to, to create space to be silent and to chew on things with Jesus when I have absolutely no distraction. It feels like it's an embracing of the boring moment or the boring situation. What does it look like to allow and even appreciate some boredom in our life so that we create margins of silence around the chaos of our activity? There are so many places that we go where we have dead time. What if, instead of pulling that phone out of your pocket, you allow the dead time to exist? What if you allow silence to find a foothold in your life so that you can reconnect with who you are and who Jesus is in those moments? So the fourth way that silence, the fourth form that silence can come in is in short stretches. By that I mean from like five-minute breaks in isolation and darkness to what I've already mentioned, to like one-day personal retreats, and which again I'll talk about more in just a minute. But the, the five-minute break, I, I take a lot of five-minute silent breaks, especially when I'm at home. If I'm struggling with something, or I've had a conflict, or if something hasn't turned out the way I wanted it to, or if I just feel sad, um, those are all, often the common drivers for me to just head down to my basement. It's an unfinished basement. It's kind of, I don't turn the lights on, so I just have lights coming through the window wells. I have an old smelly couch that sits down there. And I just go sit on the couch, I kind of close my eyes, I get used to the sound of nothing down there, and I breathe. And when I'm ready, I simply tell Jesus what's going on in my heart. And I allow him the chance to listen to me, where I'm not simply asking him for stuff. I'm just trying to share my heart. It's a recalibrating time where I just find a place where there's no distractions, either noise or visually. Um, I'm alone, and I'm guaranteed to be alone. That's an important part of taking uh, moments of silence as breaks. You have to be in a place where you're guaranteed to be alone. Bathroom with a lock, anyone? There's a place where you can be guaranteed to be alone. Make use of it. Um, Lock the door behind you for five minutes so that you're guaranteed no one's going to walk in, and it gives your soul a little bit of space to breathe and to be silent and to reconnect. Um, the fifth form that silence comes in is, I've already mentioned, silence and long stretches. We'll talk about my three-day personal retreats more in a minute. And then the last way is silence for chewing. And what I mean by that is that you take time to chew on things that have come up. Or one way that I chew a lot is when, if I'm reading something about Jesus in Scripture, and it doesn't make much sense to me on the surface of it, I will... If I'm driving somewhere, for instance, go back to the thing that didn't make sense to me, 
and I'll, I'll be quiet. I'll turn off the radio, turn off other stimulus, whatever else is happening, and I'll just throw that out to Jesus. Hey, why did you say or do that? And then I'll just chew on it for a while. Or another, another way of chewing is if I have a big challenge or anxiety or fear or something that is pressing in on me, I'll take some time, again, usually when I'm in a car, to just be silent and chew on that, meaning I'm trying to offer that to Jesus, put it on his table. I'm trying to eat a meal together with him, <laughs> and the meal is whatever challenge I'm facing. So to do that, you have to take out the earbuds and turn the radio off and treat silence as a leverage that will spark that conversation with Jesus, where you literally put something on the table for him and then chew on it for a little bit. Once you chew on it, it's amazing what surfaces out of that process. So I thought what we would do now is take a look at, at Jesus' relationship with silence in the many different forms that I've described just now. And uh, I found this stretch in Matthew 14 where I thought was fascinating, a fascinating look at Jesus' relationship with silence in his own life. Um, so he's, you know, let me state the obvious, he's God, <laughs> he has everything he needs already, Yet it's clear that Jesus uh, practiced the inclusion of silence often in his life. So he doesn't need anything, but he chooses by his very nature to include silence in his life. You could also say that God established um, the practice of Sabbath from the earliest days as a way of including silence in our life, because it comes out of his very nature. I think one of the things we'll be shocked by when we see God face to face is how much silent time he spends, how much margin he gives himself, how much time he, as Jesus did, goes off to be alone, to simply be silently alone, to choose. So let's read this portion from Matthew 14, and then I'll talk a little bit about it. That In my Jesus-centered Bible, which uses the New Living Translation, the, this section I'm about to read is titled, Jesus Feeds the 5,000. I want you to think about, as I read this, the interior life of Jesus. What do you think is going on inside of him during this scene? As soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. And this is the news about John the Baptist being martyred. Um, so as soon as Jesus heard this news, it says he left in a boat to a remote area because he wanted to be alone. Hmm. What do you think's going on inside of Jesus when he hears this news about John? But the crowds heard where he was headed and followed on foot from many towns. So the crowds heard about this, and they're, they're stalking him. They're tracking him down. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped out from the boat. What is he thinking? I just need to be alone right now. But he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. So he wanted to be alone, but he saw their need and their desperation, and he changed his plan. So instead, he turned toward the crowd instead of away from them, and he healed their sick. Picking up in verse 13, that evening the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, that's not necessary. You feed them. But we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Well, bring them here, he said. Then he told the people to sit down on the grass. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven, and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he gave the bread to the disciples who distributed it to the people. 
They all ate as much as they wanted, and afterward the disciples picked up twelve baskets of leftovers. About 5,000 men were fed that day, in addition to all the women and children. Immediately after this, so again, what's happening here? He had intended to go away alone. He got sidetracked by his compassion for the people who were desperate for healing. And then the people have nothing to eat, and he gets sidetracked by the necessity of people having to have a meal, which he facilitates in the most incredible way ever. And then immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. And after sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Look at this. We have to pause here for a second. Immediately after all this, Jesus insists that his disciples get right back in the boat and cross to the other side of the lake without him. He's trying to get his own disciples out of his hair for a minute, (laughs) and then he sends all the people home to get them out of his hair, and then he goes up into the hills um, by himself to pray while night falls. Remember I told you my little story about going down in my basement, and there's something about a dimly lit room when you need silence that is important, and Jesus goes by himself into the night. Uh, the night or the or the dim lighting tends to blot out some of the landscape, the the distractions that might distract you from simply uh, being silent and letting your soul be silent. So Jesus goes into the night alone, where the distractions are are gone, the human distractions and even the physical distractions, and he goes there to be alone. Meanwhile, verse twenty four. The disciples were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had risen and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified, no doubt. In their fear, they cried out, It's a ghost! But Jesus spoke to them at once, Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage. I'm here. Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Well, yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped, and then the disciples worshipped him. You really are the Son of God, they exclaimed. What I think is interesting about this progression is... Let's go back over this for a second. Jesus wants to be alone. He wants to chew on things with his Father. John has died. He's in the midst of his mission. He knows where that mission is headed. He has great love and compassion for the crowd, so he diverts his immediate need to uh, meeting their need. And then they have a second need of just literally having a meal, because they're so far away from everywhere. And then he takes his opportunity to clear the decks. He asks his disciples to go away, he asks the people to go home, and he goes up into the hills by himself to pray and be alone. He only comes in the middle of the night, walking on the water toward the destination where his disciples are supposed to be going. And I I just find it fascinating that after this long stretch of time where Jesus simply chewing on things with his Father, allowing himself to be silent and creating silent space around him, he walks down to the edge of the beach... Can you just imagine this? If you were, if you were a, somehow an observer, 
hidden in the bushes watching this. He walks down to the beach, walks into the water, and starts walking on the water. There's a sense of solidity to Jesus coming out of this alone time that is profound. He is completely with, uh, operating within his identity when he walks on the water and then invites Peter to, to walk out on the water with him. He's relaxed, he's courageous, he's playful even, he is fully himself coming out of this time alone. And I think that is the product of silence in our life. It re, when we reconnect in an intimate way with Jesus in the silent moments of our life, we emerge more like ourself, more fully ourself, more operating out of ourself. Nothing brings us greater contentment than to operate out of our true identity, out of our real self, and feel like all of our interactions and all of the invitations we give people and all of the ways that we intera- interact with them is really coming from a deeper place. Uh, it's an unnerving, anxious feeling to interact with people from a shallow place. But when you've had alone time in silence, you can interact with people out of a, uh, giving them water from a deeper well. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing as he walks, walks uh, across the water. And the result of it is his disciples exclaim, you really are the Son of God. Yes, uh, because it's true because he walked on the water and then calmed the wind as soon as he got in the boat, but there's something else they're reacting to as well. It's the centered, defined presence of Jesus they're reacting to, and they're sensing the reality of his identity, that he is God. And when you come from a place of silence and the, out of the margins of your life where, you're allow, where you can chew, people will sense your true self. They will be impacted by your true self um, out of those moments in time. And there's nothing, I have to say, there's nothing more satisfying in life to feel like you are operating out of a central, core, settled place in yourself where the words that you speak are, are the right words and the actions of your life you feel good about in retrospect. Um, it's, a, it's a powerful, powerful feeling. So I promised you I'd explore a little bit about um, what it looks like to incorporate two types of silence into your life. One would be a one-day-away personal retreat, and the other one would be slightly longer, a three-day personal retreat. So let me just give you some of, uh, some of the things that I do in both of these situations. And basically, these, these two ways that I practice in my life are function like an extended date night. For me. If you have a date night, a regular date night with your spouse, you know it's you kind of shut aside the distractions, you focus just on your spouse for that night, and that time's just for the two of you. Well, that's how I treat one-day and three-day personal retreats. It's just Jesus and me. Uh, I try to bring no baggage with me. Um, I, I clear the decks to spend just time with Jesus. But that doesn't mean I'm just praying the whole time. You'll see what I mean in just a second. Um, I've already mentioned that I try to find a location that uh, guarantees for me I'll have my personal space that won't be interrupted. So I go to a Trappist monastery, I also go to a nearby retreat center that guarantees me that I get to close the door behind me and I get just get to be alone behind that door. That's a, a, a very important part. You cannot have what I'm talking about by sitting at a table in Starbucks. Um, uh, you can have little margins of silence when you do that, but this one-day, three-day thing 
uh, those are longer stretches where your privacy and your personal space is protected, and there are quiet, quiet spaces. Um, you know, I've written a lot of books in my history. Every single one of them has been written, at least in part, at that Trappist Monastery in the mountains. Um, it's because that allows me the intimate, focused time with Jesus I have to have if I'm going to write a book. So um, here are some, some, just some examples. Pick what you like. Um, I will give this uh, whole list to Adam to post on our podcast page as well, so you can download this and, um, and, and print it out for yourself. So don't worry about taking notes or whatever else, but I would ask you to, as I go through the, some of the things that I do, um, if something really sticks out to you, like, wow, I really like that, um, uh, make a mental note of that. Um, uh, that. That's maybe something that the Spirit is prompting you to, to experiment with. So on my one-day personal retreat days, here are the things that I bring with me. The first thing is I, I bring something to play music on, um, and this is going to sound a little nutty, but um, I, I have uh, portable speakers that I bring with me because I want to saturate myself in the nuances of the music that I play when I go on a one-day retreat, so uh, listening to music from your smartphone doesn't cut it. Um, so I bring a little portable speakers with me so that I can really enjoy the depth of the music, and I bring a wide variety of music to choose from, uh, including contemplative instrumental, uh, old-school jazz, uh, some indie rock, and what I might call singer-songwriter music. Uh, the Christian version of that would be Andrew Peterson. The mainstream version of that would be Patty Griffin, who I mentioned uh, in our last episode. So I just I, what I do is I mix long stretches of silence with shorter stretches of music, that matches the mood or tone of whatever I'm craving at that moment. So sometimes when I'm at a retreat center, like I've described for this one-day retreat, I'll have maybe like a, a, a morning time when I'm there where I want quieter music to be playing. And then um, if I've gone and taken a hike during the day, I might come back and I want something a little more lively. But I mix in stretches of silence with shorter stretches of music. Another thing I bring on these one-day retreats is an eclectic collection of reading material. I don't ever bring just one thing to read. I bring way more than I expect to read so that I have options in the moment for the Spirit to choose what I might read. So I usually bring a serious book about the Christian life by an author I already love, or I, I also bring a new book by an author I don't yet know, and I bring at least one devotional book, and then a kind of a comfort, what I call a comfort food sort of book, a book that's not intense, that's not going to ask a lot of me, and uh, in that category, I like books that are collections of my favorite comic strips. Um, that includes uh, Pearls Before Swine and Dilbert and Calvin and Hobbes and Get Fuzzy. I'm a comics guy. I, I love uh, I love a good comic, and so I my comfort food books are collections of of my favorite comic comic strips that I bring along just to give my mind and heart a break from whatever intensity I might be in. I also bring a Bible. Now, obviously, I bring my Jesus-centered Bible as my primary focus, but I'll also uh, always bring a copy of Eugene Peterson's The Message just to change it up when I'm reading Scripture during the time. just depends on my mood and where the Spirit's guiding me, so I bring my regular Bible and a copy of The Message. I bring layered clothing, because um, I think it's important to mix inside experiences with outside experiences on a personal retreat, 
So I make sure I have the clothes and footwear I need to kind of ramble outside. So I always take a walk or a hike when I'm on a one-day retreat. I make sure to bring along a small pad of paper that can fit in the back of my pocket and a pen. And that's so that while I'm hiking or walking around, I can write anything down that Jesus says to me as, my, as I walk. If, you have, if you're married and have a spouse, um, I think this you might experience this as well, that when you're taking a walk with your spouse, it opens up conversation in a way that doesn't happen around the dinner table or elsewhere. So when you're walking with Jesus, that can open up conversation with you in a way that is unlike when you pray in a normal way. So take along a little pad and a pen so that you can write down anything that you need to remember so that you're not distracted by trying to remember something that happened. You can just write it down. Mostly when I'm doing this, I pray out loud, and I talk to him in a conversational way about anything that pops into my head. So again, when you're walking around, it's important that you know, you're know you not around other people who think you're nuts, but there's something important about praying out loud in a conversational way. It is a powerful invitation to intimacy with Jesus. So when I hike, I pray out loud, and I just talk to him about stuff that's going on in my heart. Because uh, the, a personal retreat offers more time and space for prayer, I also make sure to simply just spit out all the things I'm anxious about or have been chewing on inside for a while. That's what the walk is for. So another thing I do is uh, bring with me a determination to explore new experiences. So at the retreat center that I've gone to for my one-day retreats, there is an outside labyrinth experience. It's a Catholic retreat center, so they have some kind of ancient Catholic practices at this retreat center. It's an it's a, a labyrinth. It's a, sort of a kind of a maze that's designed to focus you on prayer. You you walk a pathway around a circle into the core of the circle. Um, it looks like you're traveling a maze, and then when you get to the core of the circle, you walk back out to the outer ring. And while you're doing that, you pray. And uh, it's really it really does help you to focus in your prayer to walk a labyrinth. So I usually try uh, uh, an experience like that, or you could go on a garden prayer walk or find little nooks and crannies scattered all over the grounds of wherever you are. And every time I go on a personal retreat, I try to experience something new. I go to someplace new, or I do something new. There's also, I bring with me a willingness to give my soul what it needs at any particular segment of the day. Now, this is really important. Um, I don't should myself on a personal retreat day. I simply honor my heart and try to decide what is it my heart needs right now, and then I do it, whatever it is. Uh, I trust my heart to know what it needs. So that means I give myself permission to not perform for Jesus when I'm on a retreat, as if I had to kind of clear some high bar to please him. means if I feel like what I need right now is taking a short nap, I do it. Or if I feel like staring out of the window at the mountains, I do it. Or if I feel like wandering the grounds of the retreat center I'm at, just to kind of an aimless way, I do it. Or if I feel like uh, I'm motivated to write a poem to my wife, I do it. So this is simply a day to draw near to the heart of Jesus and to respect your weary soul. The, the silence is, is also like pouring water on parched ground or a parched plant. Um, you want to take care of the parched plant on a personal retreat, so, so do whatever's necessary to do that, and don't should yourself into making it more, um, quote-unquote, legitimate. <laughs> Just trust your heart and trust Jesus with your heart. 
The last thing is uh, that I bring with me on a personal retreat day is a willingness to embrace and pursue silence. Um, now, that sounds funny, but s- instead of treating silence as an enemy or something to be filled or something to be obliterated, I, I welcome it. And silence can be a very intimidating thing to most people today. We are Because we're so inundated with noise, we don't know how to settle ourselves without it. It feels weird. Um, so I make sure to pursue silence, and this is one reason why on pretty much every personal retreat, I just stare out, stare out a window sometimes for a long stretch of time, not for any reason, just to incorporate some silence and fix myself on something that's outside um, to help me with that. So, so uh, I listen more than I talk when I'm on a personal retreat. I try to open myself to invite listening. So all of those things I do on a one-day retreat, um, the three-day retreat is everything I just listed plus some other stuff that's important when you have a longer stretch of time. So when you're on a longer retreat, food becomes an issue, and it, when I go on a three-day retreat, I have to bring my own food. So um, I'm, I, I'll, I'll, let you, I'll tell you right now kind of the choices that I make relative to food and why they fit with the goals of a personal retreat. So uh, even when I'm on a one-day retreat, actually, I also have to bring a simple lunch with me. So I, I guess it involves food as well. But um, in the spirit of giving my soul what it needs, I choose my favorite healthy meals to bring. So that means I bring my favorite cereal. I know exactly what it is, Kashi Cinnamon Harvest. I bring that cereal because it's my favorite cereal. I bring my favorite coffee blend, which is French roast. I bring my favorite lunch food, which is yogurt and granola and fruit with a toasted tortilla and hummus. And I bring my favorite dinner meal. Um, Usually, one of the nights, I bring a small steak and fresh vegetables and salad and a sweet potato, and then maybe pizza the other night. Um, And then I bring snacks. Uh, I I could bring some healthy snacks like baby carrots, but I also bring granola bar or tortilla chips. And I bring a special kind of dessert. And for me, that's I like dark chocolate, so I bring dark chocolate. And I drink sparkling water at every meal, just as a change of pace. And I usually bring a bottle of red wine, um, and uh, sometimes I lug my espresso machine with me so I can enjoy a latte that I make in my own little space. Um, I also, on a three-day retreat, I bring films. Um, I, I bring, just like my books, I bring a wide variety of films so that the Spirit can lead me to whatever, whatever my soul needs at the moment, and I watch a film every night when I'm on retreat. So after a long day of spent walking and wandering and hiking and praying and staring and all those things, even so that it's restful, there's still kind of a tiredness of the active engagement uh, with Jesus that comes at the night. And so always by 8 o'clock, I'm finished with whatever I'm doing, especially if I'm writing a book on one of these retreats. I stop writing, um, and then it's time to watch. So I bring films with me, and I just simply lay on my bed and watch a good movie on my laptop before I go to sleep. I stay away from intense films or super serious films and lean toward pure enjoyment. So I love Jane Austen films, so I bring a Jane Austen film often. And I love movies like The Way, Way Back or Dan in Real Life or the PBS series Poirot or Sherlock, for example. These are less demanding films. Some are funny and some are serious, but none of them demand much of my soul. Um, I also bring hiking gear. Because when I take an extended retreat, it's usually in the mountains, so I make sure that I have full-on hiking gear that I need to to wear when I go hiking. 
I bring my laptop for writing. So for me, because I'm an author and a writer, I have to write when I'm on a personal retreat. Uh, it's, it's part of the music that Jesus plays inside of me. So he's called me to this life, so writing is a very enjoyable uh, s- spiritual discipline for me. It's, it's what helps facilitate my intimacy with him. So I bring my laptop so I can enjoy stretches of writing um, while I'm there. It's a primary means that Jesus uses to develop intimacy with me, so I bring my laptop with me. But I use it only for that, and in the place that I go to, there's no Wi-Fi anyway, so I can't connect to the internet, which is a good thing to think about if you're going to go on a personal retreat. Try to go to a place that has no Wi-Fi, has no internet, so you won't even be tempted, so that it's off the table. Why depend upon your own willpower when you can go to a place that doesn't even offer that? It's better. The last couple of things, um, for during mealtimes, I, I bring sections of the newspaper that I haven't read in the past. I'll, I'll bring a comic section or sports pages that I haven't read yet, and I just, I, I just bring those along with me so that when I'm eating meals, I have something very light to distract me while I'm eating. And the last thing is, I bring unforgettable things, <laughs> things that you don't want to forget. So I, I bring a flashlight and an alarm, scrock, alarm clock or a corkscrew if I'm going to have a bottle of wine over the course of the few days, stuff that you end up needing but didn't foresee that you'd need. Um, I don't really care when I'm going on a trip like this about overpacking. I throw more stuff in than I think I'll need just so that I'll have it available to me, because it's a form of kindness to my own soul. So again, these are just uh, the things that I do. You may have some practices you have, but these are at least a starting place for you to think about this. And again, I'll have Adam put this as a... uh, as a, a link on our podcast page. And, and that podcast page, again, is at painridiculousattentiontojesus.com, and you'll be looking for Season 3, Episode 46. Um, that's where you'll find links for everything that I've talked about today. And don't forget, check out the Jesus-Centered Bible as Christmas is on its way. It's a fantastic Christmas gift. Um, it will change the life of the people you give it to, um, because it's, it's a Bible, but it's a Bible with special features that really highlight Jesus throughout and it has a way of facilitating intimacy with Jesus just by reading. And don't forget also about our three new sort of Reinventing the Basics books by my friend Michael Kiefer. You can find these all at group.com, and they are, uh, they are the, the very basics of the Christian life. How do I read the Bible? How do I pray? And how do I know God's will? These are three short, simple books that are packed full of creative ideas and amazing ways to explore these three basics of the Christian life. Again, they're, uh, they're at our group.com, and they're called How Do I Read the Bible, How Do I Pray, and How Do I Know God's Will? Well, gang, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play to make sure you get all of the latest podcasts when they're posted. Hey, and we'll talk again next time.